0: Good morning, if you would, open your Bible to Acts chapter 10, we'll be uh, stepping into the narrative of uh, Peter and Cornelius this morning. And uh, while I would like to talk about uh, everything that happens between Peter and Cornelius, all at once, uh, that'd probably be a lot for one Sunday morning. So this morning we'll kind of, you know, set the stage with uh, the the run up to their meeting and their initial introduction, and then uh, next week we'll look at Peter sharing the gospel with uh, Cornelius. But I think there's even in the in the flow of the text coming up to their meeting and and they're coming together for the first time. There's uh, several things that we ought to note. and so I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 33, and then we'll uh, walk through the text together. Next 10 we read. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, And prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he was clearly in a vision, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, And bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were the kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. And Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, and we are grateful to come before you, great God, we are grateful to hold your very word, and Lord, we pray that as we uh, turn to your word together, God, that you would humble our hearts, God, that uh, we would be uh, God appropriately grieved by our sin, God, that we would recognize that we have uh, nothing, to offer you, God, that we come here by your grace, we receive your word by your grace, you grant understanding by your grace, and that we bask in your grace. And God, we ask for more of it still. And we ask that you would help us be further conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would continue to use us uh, and for your work in establishing your church. And we pray that you would be glorified in us. And God, we know as all that happens, it is only by your grace. God, we thank you that you find joy in displaying your power through weak and broken people. And God, we confess that we are weak and broken, and eager to see more of Your power and grace. God, we pray all of this by Christ's name and in Christ's name, Amen. So uh, I, uh, yeah, you may have known or noticed that uh, you know very rarely do I. Uh, start with an analogy or a story to try to capture your attention. I guess I'm generally under the impression that if you weren't interested in the Word of God, you probably wouldn't be here. Uh, But I don't know that I could come up with uh, uh, an analogy or a story that really captures everything that's happening in this text. And as we we walk through it, I'm going to try to point out stuff, and then probably after the service I'll remember, oh, I didn't say that, that. I mean, everything about this text really is trying to draw our attention to the monumental nature of what's happening in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around that, I think, because we've always only known a people of God where there was neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, everyone all together in Christ, right? But uh, we're reading about this morning people that didn't think about the world that way. like it, it would blow their minds to think that Gentiles could be included in the covenant of grace and uh, you know this text is I think highlighting for us not only uh, a, the monumental nature of what's happening but also God's thumbprint is absolutely all over its happening, that this was very much the will of God for his people. And so as uh, the text opens, uh, a character is introduced to us, Cornelius, and everything about Cornelius would indicate to us that he's definitely not a Jew, right? His name, the fact that he belongs to the Roman army, uh, he's, he's not just a member of the Roman army, he's a centurion in the Roman army, right? So, like, uh, he oversees a hundred men, more or less. Uh, he's kind of like, a, I don't know, a non-commissioned officer, but his responsibility is probably more like uh, an American army captain, right? Like, he's 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 in charge, right? He's not just carrying out orders, but he's in charge. Uh, and at the same time that uh, everything about this guy indicates to us that he's definitely not Jewish, uh, he's also introduced to us as somebody who's very much grown to appreciate uh, God, our God. Right? He is uh, a man who fears the Lord. And Luke uses pretty uh, you know, interesting language here to indicate that I think he's not a proselyte. He hasn't fully converted to Judaism. He hasn't been circumcised. Uh, he isn't. Uh, he isn't uh, a convert to Judaism. At the same time, though, he uh, is apparently a man who uh, kind of models his life around what he expects God to want. Right? Even in his introduction, he kind of single or he he is said to be pray continually and give alms. Kind of two pillars of what Jews would have expected to be like the highlights of piety, right? Everything about Cornelius indicates that he uh, very much fears the Lord, he wants to follow God's will, yet he hasn't uh, pushed all his chips in and pursued circumcision. And uh, so Cornelius uh, is introduced kind of as this As a figure, I think I'd say that uh, very much wants to fear the Lord, yet at the same time something's does fear the Lord, wants to follow the Lord, yet something's held him back. If you remember back when we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, right? The Ethiopian eunuch is technically also a Gentile, but because he's a eunuch, he can't do what needs to be done in order for him to... uh, Uh, display his obedience to the Lord's command. Cornelius can, yet hasn't. And, uh, you know, with this guy introduced to us, we find out that in three o'clock in the afternoon, he's keeping a, this would have been uh, a set hour of prayer for Jews, corresponding with the afternoon temple sacrifice. And Cornelius goes to pray, and as he's praying, he has a vision. An angel comes and indicates to him, with very Old Testament language, like that this is a fragrant offer. His prayers and his alms are a fragrant offering before the Lord. The Lord has noticed Cornelius's piety, and so he gives him very specific instructions. Send men down to Joppa and get back one Simon, who is called Peter. And I. as we go through this passage, notice uh, he's not ever just Peter, really. He's always Simon, who is called Peter, right? And Simon would be his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. Right. So even in how Peter is talked about, Luke is trying to stress the fact that a Jew and a Gentile are coming together here. Uh, but uh, even as his name emphasizes his Jewishness, remember, if you were with us uh, a couple weeks or a week ago, uh, that he's staying at the house of a tanner, where you wouldn't expect to find a Jewish person, yet uh, he won't be hard to find. This is exactly where he's at. And the angel probably says more, uh, we find out later in the passage, but Luke at this point says, the angel departed and Cornelius calls a couple servants and a devout soldier, devout meaning not loyal to Cornelius, though surely he was loyal to Cornelius, but probably this soldier is also like Cornelius, someone who uh, wants to worship the Lord or has some fear of God. He tells these three everything that happens, and he sends them on to Joppa, which is about a 10-hour walk from Caesarea. So they're going to go from uh, the edge of what would be considered Samaritan territory through Samaritan territory to the edge of Judea. And so they take off, uh, probably the way the timeline works out here, that afternoon, and they get partway, and then they walk maybe the next six hours that morning, and they get to Caesarea, and as all that is happening, uh, Peter is up on the house around noon, uh, getting ready to pray, and becomes hungry and he wants something to eat, right? So remember, he's, he's uh, hungry enough that staying as a guest in somebody else's house, he asks them to prepare a meal at a non-meal time for Jewish. They don't eat like a noon lunch like we do. So he's, he's asked, his house, hey, I'm starving. Can you make me something? And as he is apparently in a fasted state uh, at the house waiting for the food, uh, he falls into a trance and uh, sees something like a great sheet coming down. Remember last week we talked about, uh, you know, that I think Luke wants us to understand the gospel descending on Judea and Samaria like a sheet or a blanket coming down, and there are still pockets of air, but the area is increasingly saturated with the gospel uh, and Peter sees this reality, the four corners, maybe the four points of the compass. Uh, in Peter's vision, the gospel is settling over the earth, but it's not the blanket that comes down or the sheet that comes down that is significant in this vision, but what's in the blanket or sheet coming down. And that is all kinds of animals, all the reptiles and all the birds of the air, right? This is, The same language we see in Genesis. This is all animals, clean and unclean. Everything except fish, at least. And the voice of God tells Peter to kill and eat. And Peter immediately protests because uh, there are clean and unclean animals in this sheet. And, you know, maybe thinking this is a test from the Lord or something like that. Like, no, I can't do this. And uh, I... I have always obeyed uh, the law, I've never eaten anything unclean, I'm not about to start disobeying the law, and even as Jesus had uh, alluded in his ministry to the fact that all things are clean, uh, this voice comes emphasizing that all things have been made clean. In fact, this happens another time, three times total, and the vision ends. And Peter is confused about what all this means, uh, thinking through it. And about that time, the men from Cornelius show up at the gate. They begin inquiring for Simon, who is called Peter. And Peter, still upstairs uh, thinking about this, uh, hears from the Spirit of God that three men have come for him. And he's directed to go down to meet them without hesitation that they are, in fact, from God, or God sent them. And so Peter goes down, he introduces himself, he asks them what they want. I'm sure at this point, absolutely uh, perplexed, right? Like, he's got the, the vision on the one hand that he doesn't quite understand, but now there are these three men, one of them a Roman soldier, inquiring for him in a house that he doesn't live at, I mean, everything about this situation has to be confusing for Peter, and I'm sure he's, he's wondering what's going to happen next. Uh, and these three uh, relate to him everything that had happened the previous day with Cornelius. They tell him about the message and in fact, now we find out uh, not only that, but Cornelius is expecting you to say something. He thinks you have something to tell him. And so Peter invites them in to be his guests or, he invites them in to be the guests at Simon the Tanner's house. I, talking about making yourself at home, you like extend hospitality in somebody else's house. But uh, here again, uh, Peter is uh, he's, doing, he's, hes flirting with the line again, right? Like in staying at a Tanner's house, he's already doing something probably most pious Jews wouldn't do, even though it's not technically against the law. And now, in inviting Gentiles, into a a Roman soldier, into the house, uh, he's not technically doing something that against the the law wouldn't forbid him showing hospitality to them, but he certainly shouldn't go into a Gentile house, and probably most pious Jews would do anything they could to avoid the situation that Peter's now in, sharing uh, a table with the guests, but he... uh, talks to them, and they decide that they are going to go together back to Caesarea the next day. At this point, Luke just says some of the brothers go with him. Uh, In Acts 11, we'll find out that six other guys, six other Christian brothers from Joppa, join uh, Peter and this group of three for the trip back to Caesarea, and uh, apparently they, they leave later in the day. Uh, right, with the way the timeline works out. And, uh, you know, they have a, a larger party. Uh, and so they they head out uh, the following day towards Caesarea so that he spent the night with these Gentiles. They head out towards Caesarea, and uh, Cornelius, in the meantime, has called together everyone that he is close to. And... Uh, Peter steps into uh, Caesarea and Cornelius falls down at his feet to worship him. And this would be, uh, for a Roman, uh, for a Roman of an appropriate way to show a high degree of respect to another person. I don't think Cornelius is worshiping him as God, but he's showing him extreme deference in a, a, a Roman way. And Peter picks him up immediately and says, I too am a man. Like, don't, don't do that. And there already, maybe you're seeing a little bit of a clash of cultures, uh, but uh, he steps in uh, to a Gentile home, which he should not do, and sees uh, not only is it Cornelius, but half the town of Caesarea is here. And uh, so he immediately says, and if you could... Uh, categorize in uh, introductions that don't really seem all that culturally appropriate. This would be like, this is one that seems like almost rude. Well, it is, seems very rude to me. Like, well, you know, just so you know, uh, I'm not supposed to associate with any of you. Like, can't talk to you. Uh, But God has told me that I can't, I should not call any person common or unclean, right? So like for us Jews, just so you understand, everybody in this room is unclean and I shouldn't have anything to do with any of you. But God has told me that that's no longer the case. And note uh, that in the journey up to this point, it seems like uh, Peter is getting a better handle on what the vision must mean. The vision was animals coming down in a sheet, right? And do not call any of these animals unclean, but already Peter's realized, uh, like, this this doesn't just extend to the animals, but I shouldn't consider any people unclean or common. Uh, so, like, understanding what the Lord has given me, I came without objection, and why did you want me to come? And Cornelius relates everything about his vision uh, back to Peter and uh relates you know that God or an angel of the Lord told him that the Lord has seen his piety he receives it and that he was supposed to call for Simon who is called Peter and so he called him and you were kind enough to come Peter so what do you have to say why why did God want us to interact and you know in this in this text, essentially, I think you see uh, two visions, uh, sort of like Ananias and Paul. We saw two visions occurring simultaneously. Again, we're seeing two visions occurring essentially simultaneously between uh, Peter and Cornelius. And then we're essentially seeing two journeys playing out. Uh, Cornelius sending of the three to Joppa to retrie- retrieve Simon Peter. Which was certainly a, an act of faith on Cornelius's part, and then Peter's return journey to Caesarea, which was certainly an act of faith on Peter's part. And I think, uh, you know, if we said that the point, that one of the main points of our text last week with the the miracles that seem kind of unrelated to the account around them, is to establish firmly in the reader's mind that God's hand is on the apostle Peter, that Peter hasn't gone rogue, that Peter isn't doing things that God doesn't want him to do, but Peter is serving as an apostle with the Lord's anointing, that he is uh, directing the church as the Lord has called him to direct the church. And then here again, almost everything about this text would indicate to us that though there are two very distinct cultures that sort of clash and uh, their history of clashing isn't entirely independent of God's will, that God did call the Jews to separate themselves from the world and to demonstrate their holiness, uh, still their coming together is a part of God's plan, right? That you see the miracles affirming uh, Peter's role as God's messenger previously, but here we see uh, a vision with God speaking directly. We see a vision with an angel. We hear the Holy Spirit address Peter directly. I mean, everything about uh, this text indicates that their meeting is God's appointed purpose. And, you know, as we... As we talk about Peter's relating of the gospel to these Gentiles next week, uh, certainly I think we need to step into that text very clearly understanding that everything about Peter sharing the gospel with the Gentiles is divinely endorsed. It's God's will. But even in this text, I think uh, there are. there are things that we should know that maybe aren't uh, necessarily immediately apparent and and the, the first thing i'd like to draw your attention to i guess is uh you know it's never said directly but uh humility is like absolutely woven through this chapter basically at every turn right uh Cornelius humility certainly even in the in the setup to chapter 10 and uh, stepping into Caesarea which is is a very Greek Roman city like even with its proximity to Judea uh, it's a, a newer city uh, built by Herod and everything about the city is designed to be like a Greek city it's a Greek city he came to a, a Greek city near Judea uh, and could have very much uh, continued living as a Roman, right? Like nothing about his experience, like, uh, would have prevented him very much from continuing to live as a Roman. Yet, uh, because of his proximity to Judea, there was certainly uh, some Jews in Ca- Jew- in Caesarea, and uh, something about Cornelius's heart. Certainly, we know uh, God must have been. Drawing him was humble enough to recognize uh, in Judaism, like the true God. And he worshiped the true God to the best of his capacity, in the best way that he knew how, that uh, he is introduced in the text as somebody who should be considered unclean, yet is humble enough to want to worship the Lord. And uh, in Praying and receiving the vision, he is humble enough immediately to obey the vision that the Lord gives him. He sends uh, some servants and a trusted soldier uh, on to obey the command of the Lord. And uh, Peter, uh, on receiving these visitors, is number one, humble enough to be staying in the house of a tanner, which a proud Jew would never do, but uh, humble enough to reflect on the vision that the Lord gave him humble enough to receive uh, these visitors into the home, humble enough to respond uh, by returning to Caesarea. And even in their meeting, when they're clear about the terms of their meeting, they are incredibly gracious to each other. And I I say all this because I don't think that we could ever hear often enough that the Lord works uh, in humbled hearts that the lord despises the proud and works in humbled hearts and i think that you know we can uh we can acknowledge that truth generally and at the same time that we acknowledge that truth uh generally kind of ignore all of the ways that that specifically plays out right the to be clear, when I say that the Lord works in humbled hearts, that what I mean is uh, that we are people that must always be surrendering any sense of self-righteousness, that self-righteousness is the opposite of the kind of humility that God desires to see in His people, and we have to be rooting that out in our own hearts, that we should not ever be people That shrink away from the conviction of sin, that we should always be people that uh, eagerly receive any conviction that the Lord gives, any correction we get from our brothers or sisters, that that when we respond to conviction of the Lord or correction from brothers or sisters with self-righteousness, we are killing any hope of humility, that we have to be people that are constantly reminding ourselves that we all come to God in exactly the same way, recognizing that we can only come with empty hands and in the blood of Jesus Christ, that uh, that it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter uh, how we serve the Lord, it doesn't matter how long we've been believers, that there is Absolutely no sense in which uh, we are better than the people around us. That we all come to the Lord in exactly the same way. And I think with. uh, When we contentedly sit in self-righteousness and wonder why we don't see the Lord working, like, we should not be at all surprised. And at the same time, when we uh, humbly recognize that we have nothing to give the Lord that He didn't first give us, uh, when we rest in that kind of humility, I think we will be consistently shocked at what the Lord does through us. And I say all that, and I don't even know that that's, I think, the main thing that I'd like to say to you about uh, what's happening in this text. I think uh, probably We saw with Ananias and Paul, Saul, we see with Cornelius and Peter, like, there's a, a pattern that pops up often enough in Acts that it should, like, begin to strike us as kind of obvious, and yet probably when we think about our inner dialogue and the way we kind of think about life, like, it seems to kind of fly in the face of, like, the way we think about our lives, or our circumstances. Uh, and I think certainly what's happening with Ananias and Saul, what's happening with Cornelius and Peter, what, what happens often through the book of Acts is that uh, you know, we're seeing the fact that the Lord is almost worked, always working in multiple hearts simultaneously, right? That Uh, in the same way that he was working in Peter's heart to soften uh, Peter to receive somebody that Peter previously would have never considered associating with, Uh, in the same way that the Lord was working to soften Ananias' heart so that he would associate with someone who he would have sought to avoid at any cost previously, God was also working in Saul's heart to soften him to the gospel of grace. And God ultimately is also working in Cornelius' heart to soften him to the gospel of grace. Yet when we think about uh, life, I think it's pretty natural for us. I often hear questions like, what is God doing through this? Like whatever this is, whatever the circumstance is, what is God doing through this? I can't imagine a reason for this. And usually, when people are asking that kind of question, they're thinking about it, uh, thinking about it in terms of like, what is God accomplishing in me through this? And I suggested to you a few weeks ago that when you're when you're thinking about your circumstances, one thing that seems to come up in Acts is the fact that we need to think about our circumstances with an eternal perspective. I think, uh, simultaneously, one of the things that seems fairly apparent in the book of Acts is that we ought to be thinking about our circumstances as, like, much larger than our circumstances. Like, I'm not the only person... Uh, involved in this circumstance. There are people all around me, and probably there are more people directly involved in the circumstance itself. And I think our our tendency to, to think about, like, uh, action, consequence, and really just in terms of me, uh, bears out, like, in our willingness to, certainly in our our experiences of trials or tests, but also even just in terms of obedience. And I, I would suggest to you probably that it's, it's fairly apparent in one way, at least it is apparent in my life in one way, right, that uh, say that I... Uh, Say that I become well. Maybe I'm not the best example because I'm a pastor, right? It's kind of my job. But uh, say that I weren't a pastor, and it became apparent to me that a brother or sister in the body was in some sort of sin, like in some sort of destructive sin, right? Like, what are the like, what are the what are the chances that I would actually confront that person about their sin, right? Like, what would go through my head? well, they're probably not going to respond favorably. Like, they're not, they're going to keep doing it. I mean, everybody does what they want to do. They're not going to listen to me, so why say anything at all? Or, uh, you know, even if they do respond, they're probably going to look at me weird for a long time, and I don't want to deal with that, so maybe I don't say anything at all. Right? And I think, uh, like, we fixate on... uh, Well, in this circumstance, what needs to happen is God needs to work in their heart to help them see their sin, right? Not even considering the fact that my obedience to the Lord in confronting a brother or sister in sin is having an effect on my heart, whether or not it has an effect on their heart. That when I'm walking in faith and doing what the Lord has commanded me to do, that it is absolutely changing my heart. Whether or not it has any effect on their heart is almost irrelevant, but even if we say, okay, let's also consider that, like, well, God can work in their heart just like God can work in your heart, that obedience to the command of the Lord is always affecting multiple hearts, at least, at the very least, the person who is walking in obedience and the person that they are addressing and likely it's going to affect other people's hearts as well. Like, as they see you walking in obedience, maybe they themselves are more likely to obey. The same thing is true with sharing the gospel. There are definitely people that we would say, you know, like, well, I, know, I know what they're like. Like, I've, I've, I've heard them talk, like, you, every other word's a curse word, and like, you know, I could share the gospel with them, sure, but they're not going to be interested. Like, uh, you know, I, I, see them, I see them during the week like they're not going to receive the gospel. Well, whether or not they receive the gospel, that our obedience to the Lord's command is absolutely affecting our heart and may likely be affecting the hearts of the people around us, that we are always called to obedience and we need to walk confident that when we obey that the Lord is using our obedience to affect more than one heart at a time. That God is, I I would suggest to you uh, with 100% certainty that God is rarely working in one heart at a time. I think it's, it's, appropriate humility that would make me say that, but I am very tempted to say to you that God is never working in one heart at a time. Right? That we serve an infinitely powerful God who, and, and nothing escapes his grasp, right? Like, he knows the number of hairs on a head right? that God is demonstrating to us in the text again and again that he is constantly drawing people together, always working in multiple hearts, and always for the progress of the gospel. And so, my encouragement uh, to you this morning is uh, maybe, uh, this sounds insane, but here it is. Uh, stop worrying so much about whether or not your obedience to the commands of the Lord will have the effect that you think it should have, and worry far more just about being obedient to the commands of the Lord and let it have the effect that it does, That He is sovereign, He changes hearts, and our job is simply to obey. And, you know with all that in mind, it seemed uh, appropriate to us to celebrate uh, communion together. And because like, uh, number one, we as we see the humility uh, in this text, I and mean, it is absolutely with humility that we take the Lord's Supper together. We know that it is uh, but for the grace of Christ that we can come to the Lord, and simultaneously in communion we are uh, celebrating the fact that the Lord is simultaneously working in all of our hearts. And so uh, if I could get the guys to come forward...